0: All right, everybody survived the uh, ice uh whatever you want ice apocalypse or whatever last week. Holy cow, see, I thought Oklahoma was the only place in the country when it could be twenty three degrees and still rain, but I guess Dallas now has proved proved me wrong. <laughs> um, well, we we're in our study of Genesis, and because we got shut down last week, <laughs> I was told I got to cover two in one week um, which I'm not uh, <laughs> because the reason why is last week's lesson about the image of God, I think is absolutely crucial for the rest of the Bible. The whole You cannot understand the Bible if we don't get what does it mean to be made in God's image. Because there are so many issues that are tied and related to this and it opens up so much understanding about ourselves, about God, about sin, about our purpose in the world. So I'm going to stick with it. Um, Now, Paul, two weeks ago, he talked about the different views of the creation account. And hopefully I don't fall over because I move around a lot. So maybe I ought to back up a little bit. Is that good? (laughs) Um, He touched upon the differing views. And all I want to say about this, because there are differing views. And there are good arguments to be made for it but regardless of what view you hold to the point of the creation account is god is creating the world to be a habitable habitable place for him to dwell and rule over all that he's made the structure and the order of creation in genesis 1 is significant because on days 1 through 3 what is god creating he's creating realms you got the light you got the sky you got the seas and you got land and in days four five and six he's creating rulers for those realms you got the sun moon and stars to rule the day and the night you got the sea and the wing creatures to rule the seas and the skies and this week we are going to look at the crown of god's creation man who is to rule over all that god has made so let's look at genesis 1 26 through 31, and I will make mention of some aspects of Genesis 2 as well. All right, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the ground. Now, this may be controversial, but I'm afraid of sharks in the water. But think of what this means. We were given dominion over all the creatures. Which means you were meant to say to that storm, stop. You were meant to say to that shark attacking you, stop, and it would. So, and then God said, verse 29, "'Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And then God saw that He had made, God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And then there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, let me quickly pray for our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, I just pray that You would open our minds and our eyes to see the truth of what this text is showing us. And by your spirit would you make it real to us and we ask that you would be pleased to do this even now in jesus name amen all right when you look in the mirror what do you see do you see god's image reflected back or do you see something else what does it mean to be a human being created and made in the image of god Well, the first thing that we need to see is that we are created, we are not the Creator. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? But this has a major implication that I think we so easily pass over and don't grasp, and that is this. Since we are created, it means we are absolutely and utterly dependent on our Creator for everything. Being dependent, in other words, is not a result of the fall. (laughs) It's a result of creation. So, to be a human being is to be a dependent being in need. second thing we need to see is how does God create us? Well, in chapter 1, every time God creates something, it's what theologians call a divine fiat. He commands something to happen or exist, and it does. God says, let there be, and there was. This happens when God creates the vegetation, the plants, the fruit trees, the sea creatures, the birds, and the land creatures. His divine fiat was to create, according to Genesis, each according to its kind. But in verse 26, when God created man, He said, let us make man in our likeness. So we are not made after our kind. We are made, as male and female, after God's kind, in the image and likeness of God." Now, there has been so much ink spilled over what does the the Imago Dei mean, Um, and again, there are so many different views, and I'm not going to get into all this because I want to deal with what we know to be clear from the Scriptures about the image of God. Notice. In verses 28 through 30, the first thing, notice how God's speaking to them. This is relational, this is personal, this is intimate. And now also notice what He's doing, He's blessing them, He's providing for them. So do you see how personal and how relational this is? So the first thing that we can say about being made in the image of God is that we were made to know God deeply. We were made to be in a relationship with the One who made us. The God who created all things made you and me to relate to Him in a way that is different than the way He relates to everything else that He has made, which means there's something more special about us than anything else that God has made. And we see this in chapter 2. Now just to so let you know, chapter 2 is not a contradictory account to chapter 1. It's a change of perspective. He starts in chapter 1 with the heavens, the glory, the where God is and works His way down. So now He's zooming into day 6 to look at the creation account. It's a change of perspective from heaven to the earth, and the three central characters are going to be plants, animals, and man, which is going to set us up for chapter 3, okay? But look at chapter 2, verse 4. Notice there's a name change for God. In chapter 1, we got Elohim for God. It's used 32 times, but in chapter 2, verse 4, it's Yahweh Elohim, giving us the covenant making, covenant-keeping God's name associated with chapter 2. So Moses is shifting the focus from Elohim as creator king in chapter 1 to zoom in on the relational and the personal aspect of Yahweh as a covenant-making God, as a God who binds himself to his people, a God who says, I'm not happy unless you are a God who revolves His life around the good of those He made. So Yahweh Elohim is the kind of God who covenantally binds Himself to people in such a way that He circles and revolves His life around the good of His people. Look at chapter 2, because he's zooming in, in other words, and I would call this a loyal love story between God and man. Look at verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The word formed here refers to an artist or sculptor, (laughs) shaping and molding something. See, God, he doesn't just speak things into existence. When it comes to man, what's he doing? He's getting his hands dirty. He's shaping and molding and sculpting us to be his work of art art. And then after God sculpts and fashions us into his work of art, he gets so close to Adam that he actually breathes the breath of life. But the word for breath in the Hebrew is ruach. It also means wind. It also means spirit. So the breath of life is God's Spirit being breathed into him, and he becomes a living being. And this is fascinating because animals have breath and they have life, but there's no mention of God breathing life into them, only humanity. Are you beginning to see how distinct and how special humans are to God? The second thing we need to see about being made in God's image is that we were made to reflect and display Him. (laughs) We weren't made to display another creature's fame and glory. We weren't made to display our own fame and glory. We were made to display God's fame and glory. Look at chapter 1, verse 26, because the first thing that God says after he says, let us make man in our image after our own likeness, what does he say? And let them have dominion. So we have rulers and realms, and now we've got man to rule and have dominion over it all all of creation. Which means we're made to be copycat kings. We are to rule as God rules. We are to be kings on earth who reflect and display the king of kings in heaven. Being made in God's image, in other words, means our goal, our purpose, our delight, our satisfaction, our meaning in life is directly tied to imaging forth God and putting Him on display. Our ultimate end, in other words, our whole purpose for existence is to glorify God. And being made in God's image tells us that God is glorified not by us adding to His glory, but by our acting according to His glory. See, we were made in God's image, why? So we would image Him forth (laughs) to the world. So Adam and Eve, they found their value, they found their identity, they found their worth in their vertical relationship to the Lord. They did not find it horizontally from created things. So in Genesis 1, here's it is. When God looks into the mirror of man, He sees Himself. And look at verse 31, what does He declare? He pronounces a divine benediction a blessing. It is very good. Why? Because He sees Himself. So do you see the honor, the dignity, and the value and worth that God has placed on us by creating us in His image? But here it is, this is where, again, you can argue all of the different things about the image of God, but here's what I'm going to argue. You cannot truly understand what it means to be made in the image of God unless you understand the way God relates to Himself in the Trinity. See, the doctrine of the Trinity is what? We got God who is one being who exists eternally in three persons, which means the essence of God is what? Relationship. The essence of the Trinity, of God as one, yet three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is relationship. See this in Genesis 1 at the beginning, right? In the beginning, God, and then there's this weird which nobody can really understand. What is this black, goggly goo, watery thing? We don't know, but what's hovering over it? The Spirit. And then God speaks order into the chaos. But we know from John 1 that the Word of God is who? The Son. So we got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit all actively present at creation. But it's not until Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us that we truly understand and see how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit relate to one another how they interact with one another, what they do with one another. And we see it at Jesus' baptism, the way Mark describes it in chapter 1. We've got the Father enveloping the Son with His love and adoration. This is my beloved Son. In whom I am well pleased." And then we have this description of the Spirit descending upon him, and it's literally filling him, it's enveloping him, it's engulfing him with power. And then why is Jesus being baptized? Because it's John's baptism, right? Which means it's a baptism of repentance. So if Jesus doesn't have any sin, he doesn't need to repent. So why is he doing it? Because the Father has commanded him to be identified with sinners. So the Son is obeying the Father. The Son is serving the Father. So what do we got going on here? Well, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he calls it the divine dance. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing but a dynamic, pulsating activity. A life, almost kind of a drama. almost. If you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Apologist and theologian Cornelius Plantiga, he actually develops Lewis's concept further by showing how all three members of the Trinity seek to exalt, honor, glorify, and serve the other. He says the persons within God, they exalt each other. They commune with each other. They defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard to others. Or if I was John in 1 John 4, I'd say it this way, God is love. When John says God is love, he's saying that love is the substance and nature of who God is. Love, it's not a part of God, and it's not something that He occasionally does. Love's the very essence and character of who God is, and love drives all that God does. You see, the Trinity is God in a loving relationship amongst himself, between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because God is love, (laughs) doesn't this explain why God created the world then? And doesn't this explain why he made us in his image? (sighs) See, God did not create us because he needs us. He is perfectly a loving community eternally existing amongst Himself." So God created us, in other words, why? So He could put that love on display and then give it to those that He made. So He created us in His image, here's the way I would put it, in order to participate in the dance of love that's taking place amongst Himself so that we would then reflect His love others. (laughs) We would, in other words, revolve our lives around him, and when we are revolving our lives around him, we find our meaning, we find our value, we find our worth from being loved by him. (sighs) Because when we do, we would then reflect and live like Him towards others. We would love and serve others for their good. Now in Genesis 1, after God created the world in six days, there's this refrain six times, and that God saw and declared it to be good. (laughs) But then in chapter 2, we're told after God created Adam, something in the garden is not good. What is not good? It's not good for man to be alone. This is not because Adam was lonely. This is because Adam had nobody to display God to. Adam had nobody to revolve his life around. And Adam had nobody to reflect God back to him and revolve their life around him. In other words, what's not good is when God looked at Adam alone, he did not see himself. So, we are created as male and female in God's image to reflect and display Him by loving and living for the good of others. This is God's original intent, but that world's long gone, (laughs) because in Genesis 3, what happened? Adam and Eve chose to step outside of the dance of love and became static, stationary, self-centered. Adam and Eve chose to find meaning, value, and their identity and worth apart from God. Adam and Eve believed the serpent's lie that God was not good, that God is withholding, that God doesn't want you to be like Him, which is a lie because they were made in his likeness. So what did they do? They grasped for equality with God by reaching for and taking the forbidden fruit, thinking that by eating from it, we would be like God. They believed the lie that they weren't like God. By seeking to grasp equality with God through disobedience to God, what happened? The mirror of God's image is now cracked. It's now broken. It's now shattered. So instead of imaging forth the glory of their Creator, who does humanity image forth now? The serpent, the character of the serpent. See, human beings now, they only care about themselves. Our nature now is that we use other people for our own selfish gain. In other words, our nature now wants to exalt self above everything, even God. Or I say it this way so you remember, we want to make ourselves big. But when we try to make ourselves big, what do we have to do? We have to make others small. We do what Paul describes in Romans 1. We exchange the glory of God for a lie about God, which causes us to worship and serve created things rather than our Creator. So think of that, instead of ruling over creation as God's image bearers, who were crowned with his glory and then given dominion over all that he has made. Instead of us now ruling over all of creation, creation now rules over us. We are now ruled and controlled by created things. See, we seek to find life in and from things that can't give us life. By turning away from worshiping and serving God to find life, what are we all doing? We're grasping to be God. Why? By trying to make ourselves bigger than what God made us to be. Now when God looks into the mirror of man, the mirror is cracked. God's image is still there. But it's now fallen to pieces and it needs to be put back together. This is why when you and I look in the mirror, we don't like what we see. We've lost our identity and purpose in life. We don't know who we are. We're now searching We're trying to find an identity. We're trying to find our purpose. But instead of looking for value, worth, and identity from God, we are now looking for value, worth, and identity from creation, the things in it. We place more value on created things than we do our Creator. We look to creation to give us what only God can, and we do this with other people, don't we? When we care more about what they think of us than what God thinks of us. And then don't we do this with other things? (laughs) Um, How much money we make, where we live, our possessions, our careers? God's image in us is cracked, and it needs to be restored. The dance of love needs to be resumed. And I want to look at one passage in the New Testament, which, golly, has been called the Mount Everest of the New Testament, Philippians 2, because I think what we see going on in Philippians 2 verses 3 through 11 is not only how Jesus restores God's image in us, but how Jesus resumes the dance of love. Look at verse 3 of Philippians 2, what Paul says, catch this, do nothing, nothing, nothing from what? Selfish ambition or vain conceit puffed-up pride. Do nothing, in other words, to try to make yourself big. <laughs> Why? Because Paul says it's worthless, glory, it's vain. So do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. Oh, he's going beyond the golden rule here, isn't he? It isn't love others as you love yourself. It's no, consider others more important than yourself. Ooh, that's ratcheting it up a notch, isn't it? But why is that the case? Because of what he says next. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Why? Because I want you to have this mind among yourselves, which is Jesus's. This is the mindset of Jesus Christ. What is it? Who, though he was in the form, which means the very character and nature of God, he did not count equality something to be grasped and held on to for his own vain conceit. But what? He empties himself. Now notice, he does not empty himself of being God. He empties himself of the glory as God. He empties himself by taking the form, the very character and nature of a slave, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found... In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Before Jesus took on flesh, he was and is the very character and nature of God. And as God, he viewed equality with God not as something as grasping for greatness, but giving up greatness for the good of others. (laughs) See, Jesus is showing us what? The very essence, character, and nature of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of God here. He is a God who does not seek to get, but a God who selflessly gives away for the good of others. See, rather than pursuing empty glory through selfish ambition, Jesus emptied himself of his glory. Jesus makes himself of no reputation. Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the lowest form possible, a slave. A slave without rights, a slave without advantages or privileges, a slave whose sole purpose in life is to serve and meet the needs of others. This is what true glory and worth are. Jesus is displaying the glory and the worth of God by emptying, emptying himself to become a slave who serves others for their good. Jesus is the image of God. He is showing us the glory, glorious character and nature of God. He's showing us what God intended by making us in his image. But doesn't this also expand our understanding of what sin is? Sin is living as if you are God, as if you're the Lord. Sin is when you consider yourself more important than others. Sin is when you look only to your needs and interests and not to the needs and the interests of others. See, what's the sum of the law? (laughs) To love God and love others, which means sin is the antithesis of love. Sin is when you live for yourself first, or I could say it this way, sin is selfishness. Sin is self-centeredness. See, anything that doesn't consider others first, it's empty glory. It's vain and worthless conceit. Why? Because you're imaging forth the character and nature of the serpent, and God's image is now distorted and twisted in you. Husband, do you live as if your wife is more important than you? Do you live as a slave for the good of your wife? Or do you live as if you are Lord and it's her job to serve and revolve her life around you? Fathers, do you live and treat your kids as if they are more important than you? Do you display God and serve their interests above your own? Or do you reflect Satan by putting your interests above theirs? Now, I could list every possible role you find yourself in, right? And I could ask the same questions. Do you have the mindset of Jesus? Are you displaying and reflecting the image of Jesus in all of your relationships and in all of your circumstances? If you are not, then everything you're striving and living for, it's empty, it's worthless, vain glory. Why? Because it does not reflect God. Because it's self-focused. It's not focused on others. See, I don't want you to miss how weighty and glorious this really is. Because who did Jesus humble and empty himself to become a slave for? <laughs> a slave who serves selfish. Self-centered people who think they're more important than God. Jesus let go of his glory as God to become human, in other words, to serve selfish, self-centered people like you and me. But Jesus did not just stoop as a slave to serve self-centered people. Look at verse 8 in Philippians. He humbles himself to become like us, why? So that he could become obedient to the point of death, even the humiliating, shameful death of the cross. Jesus does not just consider us as more important than himself. He considers the glory of his Father as more important than himself. Adam and Eve grasped for glory wanting to be like God. Jesus considers God's glory not something to be grasped, but something to be let go of for the good of others. So as God, Jesus emptied himself, becomes human, takes on the form of the slave in order to do what Adam failed to do, Jesus, in other words, perfectly images forth God. He obeys his Father's will, not his own. Jesus obeys his Father's will, why? To take our place. Jesus obeys his Father's will, not his own, why? So he would pay the ransom, so he would be punished and receive the full payment for all of our sin, all of our self-centeredness, All of our selfishness." Why? Why did he obey to the point of death, even the humiliating death on a Roman cross? Answer, so that we could have God's favor, so that we could have God's acceptance, so we could have God's approval, so we could know the reality of God's infinite, eternal, selfless, limitless love. In other words, Jesus did it to restore God's image in you and me. And because Jesus considered you and his Father's glory worth more than himself, look at what the Father does. In Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In verses six through eight, what do we see? We see Jesus' humble descent where he goes lower and lower and lower to the lowest possible form he could, a slave. Who lives for the good of others and because he did that notice Jesus is doing all the actions he did not count he made himself nothing he took on the form of a slave he was found he humbled himself he became obedient and then now in verses 9 through 11 it's whoo it's suddenly a big upswing isn't it where now we see his glorious ascent but who's the one ascending him above all things? The Father. (laughs) So do you see what's going on here? Because Jesus as God does not grasp for greatness, but considers us and his Father's glory as more important than himself. God the Father lays aside his greatness and exalts His Son above all things. Man. The very character and nature of God: there is no selfish ambition for vain glory. God does nothing from rivalry or vain conceit. Instead, within the Godhood, what Godhead? What do we see? We see each living for the good of the other we see each seeking to exalt honor glorify serve the other <laughs> or think of it this way when we were kids right you know maybe when you're older you still did this right like we would play this game right whoop, ah, whoop, hit, whoop, hit, whoop. we're always trying to do what one up the other what does this tell us about the trinity that god stoops beneath to raise the others up." God is a loving, selfless, self-giving God who seeks to serve others for their good. So when you see Jesus' selfless, sacrificial love for you, What's that meant to do to you? Is it not meant to grab hold and control and change you into that very image? So you will have the same mindset of Jesus. So you would do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit. But in humility, you would bear God's image and consider others as more important than yourself so that you would not just look to your own interests, but also the interests of others. In other words, Jesus lived, Jesus died, and then he was raised and exalted above all things to restore God's image in us when the reality of Jesus' selfless, sacrificial love hits your heart, when you realize that Jesus let go of greatness for your good, gosh, that He humbled Himself to serve you, won't you now reflect and display Him by loving, sacrificially? and living for the good of others. Amen. Let me pray. Our gracious heavenly Father, this is, I have to admit, this is love beyond my comprehension. That Jesus as God, as the very character and nature of God, does not grasp and hold on to his greatness as God, but was willing to let it go for my good. (laughs) To serve as a slave, somebody who is so selfish and self-centered, who does live and think he's actually more important than God. That Jesus would stoop to serve somebody like that is amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Father, would you open our eyes to see the reality of your sacrificial love, to see the reality of your character and nature, and would you then, by your Spirit, restore God's image in us, restore this image so that we would live, not for ourselves, but that we would live for the good of others and Your glory. But we need Your Spirit to produce this in us because we can't do this on our own. So melt our hearts with the greatness of Your love for us, and then change and transform us to look more and more like Jesus, and it's in His name we pray, amen.